Title III of the Helms-Burton Act provides the liability of persons who traffic in property confiscated by the Castro regime from U.S. nationals after the Cuban Revolution. But since President Bill Clinton signed the act into law in 1996, Title III had been suspended through January of 2019. But last May, the Trump administration lifted the suspension, and there have been almost continuous developments since. Jones Day's Rick Puente and Chris Pace are joining us again to fill us in on the latest. I'm Dave Dalton. You're listening to Jones Day Talks. Jones Day partner Rick Puente is a Florida Bar certified international litigation and arbitration lawyer. Rick represents clients in complex commercial and investment cases before courts and international arbitration tribunals involving witnesses, documents, and proceedings in both English and Spanish and in the U.S. and abroad. And partner Chris Pace represents clients in commercial disputes, trade secrets and unfair competition cases, money laundering and other criminal investigations and prosecutions, and federal antitrust and RICO actions. Prior to joining Jones Day, Chris served as an assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of Florida and was a law clerk to Supreme Court Justice Anthony M. Kennedy. Rick, Chris, thanks for being here today. Thanks, Dave. Great to be here. Great to be here, Dave. You know, it's been a couple months anyway since we last talked. Rick, just bring us up to speed a little bit for people who might have forgotten some of the details. What is Title III of the Helms-Burton Act and why have we been talking about it recently? Sure, Dave. So Title III of the Helms-Burton Act is the third part of a statute that was passed many years ago that allows U.S. nationals who had their properties confiscated by the Cuban government sue in a federal court in the United States over the confiscated property. Mm-hmm. Okay, real good. So much has happened since we last talked. A couple court cases were handing down relative to a plaintiff having appropriate standing to pursue a case. Tell us what happened in Havana Docks versus Carnival. Sure, Dave. That case is interesting because it's pending here in the Southern District of Florida and was one of the first cases that was filed under Title III when the suspension was lifted in May of 2019. Mm -hmm. And in that case, initially, the federal judge denied the motion to dismiss. Then when Carnival filed it, then another cruise line, which was sued involving the same plaintiff, involving the same allegations, essentially, a few months later, granted the motion to dismiss and then reversed again. So there was a bit of back and forth there. Recently, most recently, the court denied Carnival's argument on standing, constitutional standing under Article 3. What had happened, Dave, is that a case involving the airlines had been transferred to Texas. And the argument was raised there that the airlines should be dismissed from the lawsuit because the plaintiff had not established sufficient evidence of standing under the pleadings to proceed with the, with a lawsuit under Article 3. Very basic concept, but a compli- complicated concept. The court in, in Texas ruled in the airline's favor and dismissed the case. So Carnival and other cruise lines also had raised that argument and filed that case as a notice of authority in support of their motions to dismiss. But the court denied disagreeing in sort of with the Texas court and saying that the plaintiffs had satisfied injury in fact, which there was some issue about whether the plaintiff had established concreteness of the injury uh, because at the end of the day, it was the Cuban government who had confiscated the property, not the third party who was now benefiting, Benefiting. deriving economic benefits. 
The court disagreed and distinguished that case in Texas, saying that the plaintiffs there had not alleged or had admitted, conceded that the injury, in fact, was not at play because the particular defendant had not caused the injury, in fact. And then, basically, the court found, in lengthy opinion, that there was standing and allowed the lawsuit to proceed. So that case is now in litigation against the cruise lines, against Carnival in particular, and is in the discovery phase. All right, Chris, do these recent developments bring about more clarity in terms of the scope of Title III and what plaintiffs might be able to bring forward? Or does this bring about a bit more confusion or indecision, even? Well, I think it brings about less clarity, but in a way that is favorable to defendants. So, in other words, the first couple rulings that came out under the Helms-Burton Act on motions to dismiss denied the motions to dismiss. And it was looking as if many of these claims were going to be able to go forward. Now, we've definitely got a mixture of results. Rick just talked about the American Airlines case. There's also a case against Amazon that was dismissed. There's a few dismissals out there. I think plaintiffs are concerned as to their ability to maintain their claims. There's been a decision recently on the question of when did you acquire your claim, and if you didn't acquire it within the right time period, you can be kicked out of court for that. So uncertainty has been brought into the process. That is to the benefit of the defendants in those cases for the most part. Right now, there are two different cases on appeal, one to the Fifth Circuit, one to the Eleventh Circuit. Those appeals won't be decided for a while, but each of those appeals really has an opportunity to provide some clarity to the law because you're going to have an appellate court speak on the issue as opposed to simply a variety of district courts. Has COVID slowed everything down, Chris? Are they still hearing cases at about the pace they would have? I mean, in terms of timetable, what should people expect now? Well, for courts of appeals, I I think it slowed the courts of appeals, but not as much as we've certainly seen at the district court level. They're still moving pretty quickly, but not quite as quickly as before. I think at the district court level, so many civil cases saw a great slowdown from sometime around March to sometime around July. Mm-hmm. We've started seeing cases picking up, and I would say my Helms-Burton cases are picking up at about the same tempo as other complex civil cases. Let's switch to, if there were ever a household name, this is one. ExxonMobil, Rick, is suing some Cuba state-owned entities. What's going on here? And talk about the role or the impact of something called the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. Just give us an overview of what's happening here. Sure, Dave. So that's an interesting case because it involves the essentially the petroleum assets that were owned by Standard Oil, which later became Exxon, ExxonMobil, and involved a certified claim that was for over $70 million issued by the Foreign Claims Service Commission pursuant to the International Claims Settlement Act. You may recall from the prior podcast There are two types of buckets of claims. There's those that are certified, that have been certified as to the owner and to the amount by the United States Commission, and the uncertified claim. Well, this one falls under the certified claim. And that has a presumption of correctness as to the owner and then also as to the amount, which tags along interest since the time period that decision was entered, which was in the 1960s. So what's really interesting there is that Exxon has sued essentially Cuban state-owned entities. Cuban state-owned entities, and what you mean by state-owned entities as that has been defined, is that the Cuban government 
is the majority shareholder or controlling owner of these entities. And so these state-owned entities, there are two in particular, they own, for instance, the service stations and the entity that processes the financial payments. They have moved to dismiss, saying that, well, one of the arguments they raise is that they're separate, that they manage themselves separately and apart from the Cuban government, even though they're state-owned entities, and that they're subject to protection to the extent that they are state-owned entities by the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, which protects governments in general from litigation. But there are exceptions to the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. And one of those exceptions, for instance, is commercial activities. And if those commercial activities are having direct effects on, for instance, U.S. companies, right, U.S. companies that may be competing in the petroleum market, for sure. example, then you can get around the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act to the extent it applies. And also, what's kind of interesting is the Helms-Burton Act, it's very lengthy, Dave, and one of the things it does, it defines who persons are. Persons, uh -huh. under the statute, if you look at the statute, is defined to include state-owned entities, agencies of the mm. Cuban government. And that's where they're distinguishing in their opposition papers that the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act doesn't apply. And if it did, well, Title III covers it and allows them to proceed with a lawsuit. And also that there's direct effects, that there's direct effects in the, being felt in the United States. So that's kind of a general overview. There are declarations that have been filed. There are factual issues that need to be flushed out by the court in connection with these allegations before there's going to be a ruling on that motion. Where's this case being heard? It's in the D.C. Circuit. I didn't know, given the state-owned entity, giant multinational energy company, I don't know if this is something that would go to some, lack of word, neutral court somewhere, you know, Singapore or something, but this is being heard in D.C. Yeah, in a federal court, there's subject matter jurisdiction under the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act and the exceptions of the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, and that case is, could have substantial precedential effect on future cases involving state-owned entities. Right, uh, particularly where there's a statute creating liability. So one definitely to watch. And Rick, one of the protections in the federal legislative scheme, obviously if you're going to create a cause of action in a country, you're going to allow your courts to hear it. But when you're suing a government-owned entity, in most cases you actually have to sue them in D.C., which is what Exxon did here. And I think that's really designed to be the protection. Exxon's based in Texas. Exxon probably would have rather have sued them in Texas, mm -hmm. but the idea is, whether accurate or not, that the district courts in D.C. will be or may be more sensitive to political and international issues than district courts elsewhere in the country. As a policy matter, I may not agree with it, but I think that's the idea that Congress supports. Yeah. Absolutely, and and that's a great point, and we'll see what happens there, but you know, there's cases now, for instance, going on against the Chinese sovereign entities involving this whole COVID. So. <laughs> They're well, paying attention to this lawsuit, no doubt. And thank you, Rick, because my next question was going to be, this particular case probably has ramifications beyond Helms-Burton, right? You just mentioned COVID and some Chinese companies. This is something to watch. When do you expect something to happen here, a decision, or, or what happens next with this ExxonMobil matter? The Cuban state-owned entities will file a reply to this response that was recently filed by ExxonMobil, and then the court may allow maybe some discovery on some of these issues some limited discovery and then after that the timetable on a ruling could be could be a while 
but you know it's certainly an opinion that I think is going to catch the attention of of a lot of foreign companies that are controlled or owned or managed by foreign governments in connection with their exposure involving uh, conduct occurring extraterritorially. Because remember, this is again conduct occurring outside U.S. soil. Right. But the whole argument of direct effects, for instance, direct effects, what does that mean? And how is that going to be interpreted by this court in this context is something to pay close attention to. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, Rick, thank you for the segue because that's kind of where I wanted to go next with this conversation. I want to talk about some non-U.S. or what we would term foreign companies from here in terms of how they're being affected, what they're doing. A lot of concepts to take in, and you guys were kind enough to supply me with some notes to get ready. Application of the blocking statute, issues of personal jurisdiction, amendments to the Cuban asset control regulations. That's a lot to unwind. Chris, let's start with you. Starting where you like, really, but there are things going on with non-U.S. companies relating to all this. What's happened since we last talked? What we have seen more recently is plaintiffs starting to sue more international, more non-U.S. companies. If you recall, when the first lawsuits were filed, really with the exception of Exxon, the Exxon lawsuit against the Cuban government entities, there were a lot of lawsuits filed against U.S. companies. And even today, the majority of the lawsuits are either against a U.S. company or a U.S. and non-U.S. company together. But we're starting to see more of an uptick of plaintiffs trying to sue non-U.S. companies under Helms-Burton be interesting to see the decisions that have come out thus far have not really tackled the personal jurisdiction issues very much. The U.S. Supreme Court has a personal jurisdiction case before brought by Ford Motors that may be very relevant to these cases down here, particularly as to the issue of whether you can sue if all of the allegedly bad conduct or harming conduct is really occurring in Cuba, whether you can even sue in the U.S. anywhere. It doesn't matter that Miami may only be 90 miles away or Florida may only be 90 miles away from Cuba. If none of the conduct occurred there, you may not be able to sue. So we'll see what happens with those cases. They're all relative. Most of them are relatively young the European companies that are being sued are going to the, the European Union um, and trying to ask for decisions or direction on their European blocking statutes. Mm -hmm. The European Union is not moving too fast, I suspect, in part because they want to see if these things just don't go away naturally uh. because the U.S. courts kick them out. Right. But if not, I think a lot of folks expect that there will be a decision out of the European Union that's going to say, our blocking statute is very clear. You can't have anything to do with a lawsuit under Helms-Burton. The blocking hmm. legislation specifically talks about this legislation. Good. Rick, anything you'd add to that? Again, this part of the conversation in terms of the non-U.S. companies and how they're being impacted and what's happening there. Anything you'd like to add to what Chris just told us? Yes, Dave. So I think Chris covered it very well there. Just I would add that uh, the issues of international comity um, are really being closely looked at and being tested by the federal courts here. What do they do? Because the European companies that are EU members are saying, we're facing criminal liability if right. we comply with a statute. Hmm. And that raises the question for the federal judges here, do they stall the litigation out of respect for foreign court decisions? That is an interesting dilemma, right? Because the criminal exposure and the, the penalties themselves are severe for non-compliance. So that is another issue to closely watch, how the federal courts are going to be dealing with these issues of comity. You have a hunch? 
how they rule and stuff like that? I can only comment on what we've seen so far. And Uh what we've seen is that one judge, for instance, uh, overruled a motion to try to continue the case to lift the stay because the European Commission was taking too long to decide. And so there is an indication that the courts recognize the dilemma and they're going to allow some time before I think they make a decision on lifting a stay until there's a decision before the European Commission. But again, these cases are fluid. They're cases of first impression in the context of the Helms-Burton Act. And courts may disagree, right? So we'll see. I don't know how you guys stay current with all this. I know that's your job. It seems like this is so fluid. Every time we talk, it's changed so much. When clients come to you, I got to believe this is complicated and you're not always certain. How do you stay abreast of the latest and how do you kind of know what might be coming next? What do you do? Well, Dave, it's a great question. And because we have clients impacted by these issues, even though they have not, for instance, sued yet or are subject to litigation, At Jones Day, we have a team in place that handles both the regulatory aspects that are super important here and that you need to be aware of and updated on on a constant basis. For instance, we had an amendment by the Trump administration to the Cuban Asset Control Regulations adding to the list of hotels that are prohibited, for instance, from U.S. persons subject to U.S. jurisdiction staying at those hotels. So you have to stay abreast. It's our job. And also, because the Title III is a statute of first impression, you have to really be very, very well in tune with these international legal issues that come into play and these constitutional law issues that come into play. So there's a team of lawyers here that we closely work together on these cases, and we try to keep abreast by making sure that we're aware of what the courts are doing, uh, what the political side is doing, what the Trump administration, for instance, is doing, and what's coming down the road, right? Because, as you know, we're in an election year, right? right. And it's around the corner now. So, well, so we keep in tune of things, yeah. right? Well, since you brought it up, Rick, <laughs> let's talk about that. Okay, major election coming up very shortly. Obviously, the Trump-Biden showdown. Some think the Senate might be in play as well. This is both to Rick and Chris. What's your take? Let's say Trump holds on. Trump's still the president for another four years. What's the impact on Title III matters? Or if former Vice President Biden wins, what do you see happening there? Is it too difficult to call? Or do you have any inclination in terms of how these things might unwind? It's Chris. And I think as to President Trump, if there's a continuation of his administration, I think we can expect that they will stay the course. And they might even ratchet up as they just did recently, the pressure on Cuba, though that most recent move may have been a political move right before the election, but the timing in terms of letting lawsuits be filed under Helms-Burton and in increasing the pressure on Cuba as well as Venezuela are not so tied to an election, right? Those occurred years ago or within the past year. Certainly seems that's consistent with the Trump administration position. And absent a substantial turnover in his administration, I think we would all expect that he'll continue it. Much more difficult question when it comes to Vice President Biden if he becomes the President of the United States. Obviously, when he was Vice President, he did so serving with a president who relaxed restrictions on Cuba. That was President Obama. Mm -hmm. At the same time, Vice President Biden has spoken about taking tough stances on places like Venezuela and other countries, Nicaragua. He hasn't said a lot about Cuba. On Thursday, October 15th, 
Both of them will be in Miami, Florida, unless there's health reasons that they can't do so. Right. I will not be surprised if the question comes up in that context to Vice President Biden, what exactly is your position on Cuba? You served under a president who loosened restrictions on Cuba, and more recently you've talked tough about Cuba. What's your stand? And we may know more then, but I think with President Trump, you can expect if he wins re-election, we are going to see a continuation of the pressure being placed on the Castro government to turn over power and concede to a democracy in Cuba. Interesting. Rick, anything you'd add? Yes, Dave. I think I agree with all those comments made by Chris. I think from Biden, I would suspect that one possibility is he may say these are Cold War era policies and maybe go back as a rationale to what Obama had in play. But the reality is that these cases could have a substantial impact on foreign policy issues and foreign policy issues, not only obviously as to Cuba directly, but also Venezuela and China. And these are complicated issues, but uh, very, very impactful issues that we need to keep a close eye on. Definitely, definitely. And we will. Hey, we'll leave it right there. You guys are always great. I learn something every time we talk, as I think Rick said, and I think I followed up. This story just doesn't sit still. You guys have a great week, and uh, thanks so much for being here today. Take, uh, take care, Dave. We'll be in Bye-bye. touch. Bye now. For complete bios and contact information for Rick Puente and Chris Pace, go to jonesday.com. While you're there, visit our Insights page where you'll find commentaries, white papers, alerts, newsletters, more podcasts, including previous podcasts on Helms-Burton, videos, and other important content. Subscribe to Jones Day Talks at Apple Podcasts and wherever else podcasts are found. As always, we appreciate your listening. I'm Dave Dalton. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you for listening to Jones Day Talks. Comments heard on Jones Day Talks should not be construed as legal advice regarding any specific facts or circumstances. The opinions expressed on Jones Day Talks are those of lawyers appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the firm. For more information, please visit jonesday.com.